welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. This episode is going to be a little unique because it's the first one that Cole and I have ever done almost six years of uh, doing this podcast um, in, in two different locations. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I don't, no, I don't you're right. We've done yeah. many with other people in other locations, but never with us two in other locations. So we're uh, we're trying out some some new stuff and some new software, and so I'm going to go ahead and apologize because I have a feeling that I didn't set up the audio correctly. So if we sound ridiculous um, this episode, please bear with us, and I'll I'll have it sorted out by next week. Hopefully. Well, now Mike can't bear all the blame for any audio issues because I have my own audio things I have to do. So likely, if there's any issues, it's it's on my end as well. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it'll sound fine. Maybe not well, our our normal top notch quality, but it'll be fine. Yeah, I hope so, but we'll see. It'll be all right. All right, so today we are going to be doing an accredited episode, and we're covering a topic that I believe we've touched on for like patient cases and whatnot, but we haven't really gone in depth with it. And there's actually a new treatment guideline that was published this year, mm -hmm. and uh, so we're going to go through that as well. So we're going to be talking Hep C tonight, um, and uh, I don't think we've done a full episode, right, Cole? Am I correct on that? Um, yeah, I mean, we definitely have touched on it probably two or three times. Um, and I, I think we had a guest on to talk about it. At one point. Oh, that's right. Dr. Uh, Meisner came on. Yeah. MUSA. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. But I don't I know that about that. We, we have not done it like we do our, our thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this, like I said, this episode is accredited and, and so we have to thank our, our friends over at freece.com. Um, for those of you who are already members of freece.com and you have your unlimited membership already, already good to go. Then you have access to all of our, um, accredited episodes, which there are over 50 now. And, uh, as you listen to this, this episode and at some point we will give you a password that you need to remember. And after you're done listening, you'll go to freece's website and you'll use that uh, password to get access to the post-activity test. Um, so if you go to the learn section and then go to uh, click on podcast, you'll see all of our accredited episodes. Just click this episode and then put in the password, take your 10 question multiple choice quiz, and you'll get one hour of continuing education credit. Uh, it's available for pharmacists and nurses. So um, definitely take advantage of that if, if you are a member of freeseed.com. And if you're not a member check them out. They have a lot of great content and um, a, a lot of good learning styles as well. So if, whether it's live, you know, talks that you like, podcasts like we're doing here, you know, monographs that you're reading on your own, they have a lot of different options. They have panel discussions. So a lot of good stuff on their website. Definitely check them out as well. Big thanks to, to them for continuing to work with us. 100%. <clears throat> All right. So Cole, where do you want to start, my man? Yeah, so I'll just give a little background. Um, to oh, actually, before we even say that, I, I don't know if this is necessary or not, but this is the first time I've ever even had to think about this. I, I have a disclosure, I guess I should say, right? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, cause, because uh, I was a paid speaker for Gilead um, from the, for the year 2022. And so uh, I, I did talks for Epclusa and based on the, the hep C program that I had done at the FQHC that I used to work at. So um, I'm no longer employed by them or receiving any kind of money from them. So we will be talking about Epclusa tonight, but we'll also be talking about the other options as well. So just wanted to throw that out there. I don't know that that's necessary, but just in case, since this is accredited, I don't want anybody calling me out. That's very prudent of you, Mike. 
Thank you. I'm really just, it's the new me now that we're virtual. I know. I wouldn't have even thought about it. So that's great. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Cause you know, anytime you do a CE, especially when there's a slide deck involved, there's always that slide about conflicts of interest and things Mm -hmm. like that. So that was our conflict of interest slide. Man, we finally Um, had one. I know. Finally, (laughs) we just don't do enough stuff to have conflicts. That's the problem. (laughs) Not important. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, so of course, hepatitis C is a huge burden across the world. 71 million people, they estimate, have chronic hepatitis C. Um, upwards of 400,000 people die from um, complications related to hepatitis C across the world. Though in the U.S., the incidence of acute hep C infection has significantly decreased over the past decade, though it is still prevalent. Um, and um, as far as the risk groups in terms of screening, um, the recommendations with this newest guideline have kind of changed. So we'll kind of go through that. Um, but yeah, it's still, it's still a significant burden and we have great drugs out there now to treat it. Yeah. And, and, you know, if we think about the patients that have hep, hep C, you know, actively, at least that we know about, there's a lot of patients that we haven't even identified that are infected. Um, you know, we think of historically, we think of our hep C patients, we think of our baby boomer, you know, generation. And that was kind of like the the age range that we would screen for. Well, as time has gone on, especially, you know, as of like 2019, 2020, um, they realized that actually one of the biggest growing age groups for new cases of hep C is actually the, the younger, like 20 year old age range, like 20 to 30 year old male patients um, are actually more likely to, to contract it um, than the baby boomer generation um, currently. So um, that has been a kind of a big shift in thinking as far as who even needs to, who do we even need to be on the lookout for hep C and, and, and that's now it's, it's transitioned from that older generation, uh, the baby boomer generation to anyone basically who is over the age of 18. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force says that you should basically screen them at least once. Um, and uh, if they have risky behavior that would put them at risk for um, contracting uh, hep C later on, then um, they should be you know, tested again based on clinical judgment or once a year, even if you want to set something. But uh, at least even if someone's never used any kind of you know recreational drugs or anything like that that would put them at risk, they still need to be screened at least one time in their life just to make sure. Right. And if they do things that put them at higher risk, like um, recreational drugs and those sorts of things, they recommend repeat screening for not, but not necessarily for the general population. But that's yeah. a big change from the um, previous hepatitis C guideline that I think was published in 2020. Is this universal um, recommendation for screening, and they harp on that multiple times throughout the um, throughout the guideline to say that it's a necessary component for the elimination strategy. Um, of hepatitis C. But as we go through, we'll talk about some other things that they've updated, um, like addressing uh, if patients weren't 100% adherent to the medications and how important that is. Um, Updates about the um, simplified treatment monitoring and uh, eligibility being expanded. Um, And really, I think that the guidelines somewhat other people's opinion somewhat has really simplified your thinking as far as what you're choosing to treat with because we have a couple of drugs that treat any genotype and it just makes it a lot easier to decide right yeah i mean it used to be back in the i mean it really wasn't even that long ago i say back in the day uh, yeah, like i feel like we, yeah when, when we graduated i feel like it, you know these drugs were just now like starting to come out um but 
basically the uh i mean the treatment options are so great now that and and they're that we have access to them so we'll talk about that as well because i, I want to make sure that we we touch on the fact that we can get patients even if they are uninsured homeless patients we can get them on these these medications and um cole i, I wanted to jump say something real quick because i think you had mentioned that the the number of hep c cases has been going down but um, actually, the acute infection rate is going up, but not because of just more patients in that older generation. It's because we're starting to screen the younger patients now. So like when you put all the numbers together, it actually follows the exact same trend as like the opioid overdose death trend oh, wow. over from, from like 2008 to 2019. If you kind of watch the, the reported acute cases of hep C, uh, they've, they follow um, in a you know, linear relationship with uh, the opioid overdose deaths as they've gone up. And one statistic has showed that uh, patients um, who inject IV drugs, uh, and it's young people you know, specifically who inject IV drugs that have hep C, it's 45% of young people who inject drugs that actually have hep C. And 70% um, of patients who contract uh, hep C for the first time um, use IV drugs. Wow. So it's definitely uh, something that with the fentanyl overdoses and all that that we're con you know, combating, we also have to kind of keep in mind that there is that infectious disease component as well. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, as far as um, testing goes, we'll kind of get into different pieces of it. But um, when they are screening, there's two different things they can look at. They will first, for most people, initially screen with a... Um, with the hepatitis C antibody. And if that's negative, then you probably know that they don't have active hepatitis C um, uh, and that they haven't necessarily had it before. Um, but if it's positive, then that could mean that they have active hepatitis C, or it could also mean that they've had a resolved infection or that they've been treated for it before. And so if they have, if that's positive, they would have to move on to a RNA test um, and that would show if they have active infection or not, if that's positive or if it's negative, then you could probably rule out the, the positive infection or the current infection. And it would mean that they had a resolved infection or one that they've been treated for. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, hep C does sometimes clear on its own. I mean, it, it, depending on the research you're looking at, I mean, they say between like 20 up to like 30% of cases actually clear on their own. And so those patients will always have that positive hepatitis C antibody. Um, but yes, that is super, super important to remember. Uh, if you do get a positive antibody, you have to verify it with an actual quant or a qualitative RNA test to make sure that the, it's testing for an active virus in the system. Um, I've seen, but when we were first starting our hep C program, we were kind of like looking through some of our, you know, former uh, like referrals and things like that, we noticed that there were several that had been put in that had a positive antibody, never checked to, to verify, and they were sent to like GI or whatever, and they were not infected anymore anyway. So um, yeah, just make sure that it, that happens. And I also have had a patient who was, I treated with Epclusa for two, 12 weeks and verified 12 weeks later that there are, there are no, no more virus in her system. All of a sudden, I get a message from her like a couple months later saying that she has hep C again. And I was extremely confused because this was a person that had no clue how they got in the first place and was very, you know, concerned about getting treatment and everything. And uh, they said they got hep C again. And I, I was 
kind of baffled. And, and <laughs> when I actually talked to them, uh, the patient, it, they explained that they went to some urgent care place and I, I don't know why they did it there, but they did a hep C antibody test, saw it was positive and told her, do you have hep C again? And so she's in the office crying with me and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> sorry, that person's an idiot. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so she spent like the whole weekend thinking she had hep C again. I was like, oh my gosh. So don't be that person. Yeah, um, the hep, yeah. The hep B labs also get people confused a lot too because of the three different uh, antibody and service antigen and all that kind of thing. Yeah. In fact, I mean, so that is part of the the testing um, when we're working up a patient to start on, you know, hep C treatment. So I guess we should, we should probably go through that now since we, since you brought it up. Does that sound good? Yeah. That's good. Um, so when we're thinking about our, our hepatitis B labs, there's a few of them that we need to be aware of. So the, the big one and the one that we would very much like to be negative when we're, you know, working a patient up for hep C treatment is the surface antigen. Um, it's abbreviated HB, lowercase s, capital A, lowercase g. So the surface antigen, um, if that's negative, that means that obviously the, the patient doesn't have an active or acute infection. Um, there's also the anti uh, or the core antibody. So the hep B core antibody and the um, surface antibody for hep B. The, and what those kind of are looking at is the surface antibody is basically showing that the patient has been um, vaccinated against, so they're, you know, immunized against hep B. Um, technically speaking, it's only valid if the test is formed like one to two months after the, the third vaccine dose. But, but pretty much, I feel like everyone kind of, if you see a positive surface antibody, they kind of just assume you've had the vaccination or you are immune. Um, and then the core antibody is a little bit more complex because there are times where you might get a negative core or excuse me, a negative surface antigen, but you have a positive core antibody and a positive surface antibody. In that case, because those both antibodies are positive, it's just indicating that it's a resolved past infection and um, you don't need to do any further management as long as both of those are positive and the surface antigen is negative. If just the core antibody is positive, um, that's where I feel like for me anyway, it gets the most confusing. Um, that means that it's th there's a couple different things that could be going on. It could be a, a resolved infection that just hasn't um, that core antibody just hasn't turned negative yet. Um, it could be false positive, and um, it, really the the way to to know for sure is is to get a, a, a Hep B DNA viral load, um, especially if the patient is immunocompromised. That's really when it's you know, even more so like necessary, but if, uh, if you want to be thorough getting a hep D or a hep B uh, DNA viral load, that'll tell us if there's active virus currently in the system. And if not, then we can kind of move forward. But if the surface antigen is is positive at any point, that's an acute infection and we need to take other precautions before we start the hep C medications. Right. Uh, so that's one piece of the workup, and it's important to note that just because someone's infected with hep C, which of course there's no vaccine for, they're still susceptible to hep B and hep A, um, and so you want them to be vaccinated for that. Um, there's uh, other things that they will work up. For one, they want to uh, assess if there's fibrosis as well. Um, and there's a number of ways that that can be done. Um, one, which is not often done, but maybe in more significant cases, is a biopsy. Um, but more commonly, they're going to use biomarkers to kind of guess or stage whether they have fibrosis. It's not nearly as um, 
as accurate as, of course, a biopsy, which would tell you exactly what their fibrosis stage is. But for the purposes of this, it's adequate. There's also something called a fibro scan, which is like a um, like a uh, elastography ultrasound type thing that's a little bit newer and not everybody has access to. Um, but it's a pretty reasonable non-invasive option as well. So if you see in some guidelines when it mentions non-invasive scoring of fibrosis, that's what it's talking about. Um, there's some other labs too that you'll want to get a baseline. Um, CBC, INR. Did, oh, sorry, Cole. Did you mention the fibrosure? Um, didn't mention the fibrosure itself, but is that the like the so, biomarker? So yeah, that that's the the one that I feel like a lot of people use if you're just getting the biomarkers. It's called fibrosure, and it, it basically um, looks at a series of you know bilirubin things like that, and will give you a uh, a fibrosis scores like F1, F2, and you know, from there, you can kind of predict the likelihood of the patient having advanced fibrosis or even cirrhosis based right. on that score. And most DMRs make it pretty easy. Like um, uh, you can just order a fibro, sure, and it'll, the lab core, or whatever, will draw the appropriate labs and kind of spit it back for you and have it all all yeah. there. So not too hard. Yeah, definitely. And if, like, like Cole said, the, not everyone has something as fancy as a fiber scan, which we actually have one on our floor now, which I thought was pretty funny. Oh, I, yeah? just was, I was sitting in uh, this one lounge area waiting for this one physician to, to I needed to talk to um, about a patient. I'm sitting there waiting for it. And then I'm looking over like, is that a fiber scan just sitting in this room? And then <laughs> the guy I was waiting on is like, yeah, dude, I got the, I just got it. He's like, I'm doing some research projects. They gave me one. I, like, I mean, oh, that's, that's great. Because that's pretty freaking awesome. There's that new drug that um, is hopefully going to be approved for fatty liver disease next year. And um, that I think is going to be be pretty good. And fiber scan <laughs> hopefully is all that the insurances will require if it's or I mean, a fiber sure would be great. I'd be surprised. But generally for this uh, for Nash, you have to get you have to um, confirm it with a biopsy. But if people have access to a fiber scan, I think that they would let that fly. So it's good that you yeah. have one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the other thing real quick, too, since we're talking about fibrosis, because uh, you can also do some calculations, especially if when we're talking about the simplified um, algorithm, which we'll talk about. But um, th there's an app um, called HEPCALC, um, H-E-P-C-A-L-C. I, I, I got it a long time ago. I want to say it's like three bucks, four bucks or something like that, like a one-time fee. But it, it has all of the um, fibrosis scores, like the FIB4 that you can calculate. It's got the pre-fibrosis score. And then it's also got like the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease fibrosis score, Holt-C cirrhosis score, um, a bunch of different stuff on there. It's a different risk uh, calculators for immuno, um, you know, compromising diseases, alcoholic hepatitis, things like that. So it's something that if you're working in any kind of capacity with this type of thing, it, it makes things a lot easier. So just throwing that out there. The FIB4 and the APRE scores are uh, much more simple and something you could kind of do on the fly with some other lab work that may have come from a CMP or something like that. But basically mm -hmm. you can take AST, ALT and platelets and it, it, it spits out. I'm a FIB4 and a pre-score to give some, some gauge of fibrosis scoring. So, um, but yeah, some other labs at baseline, INR, liver function tests, of course, GFR, thyroid function tests. Um, you want to screen for hep B, you also want to screen for HIV, um, and then pregnancy tests if it, if that's going to be, um, relevant to the patient too. Yeah. Um, now, if the patient is, you know, trying to get this covered under their insurance and all that, then you may end up having to, to get more labs drawn, um, depending on what the prior authorization requires and things like that. So I, 
all of that kind of can change depending on the insurance plan. But the simplified regimen does require a lot less like pre-treatment testing and things. Yeah. Um, so if you can qualify for that, it makes things easier and is cheaper for the patient overall. But I have run into situations, at least when I was doing the Epsi stuff, which has been over a year now, um, I basically had to, there was some insurance company, you know, some insurance plans that I had to like give them so much information and show that every little thing that we had done before they would even consider covering it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just depends on the patients. That's that, that whole, uh, we can have a whole episode on just getting those things covered with prior auths and all that. Right. And part of that is of course, cause they're, you know, extremely expensive, but, um, it's been pretty widely studied and established that the, the, it is a cost effective thing to do. Oh yeah. Cause you know, they, they put, they put numbers on like quality of life years, all those kinds of things. And curing hep C, the earlier, the better that you cure hep C, it's definitely worth the cost that, that comes along with it. So you'll find that if a patient is insured, it, it'll, it'll likely work out. Um, you know, for the uninsured patients, it can be more challenging, but of course there are avenues through manufacturers and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'll make sure I talk about those too, because the programs for the patient assistance stuff are, are actually quite good for the two, you know, market leaders. Sure. Sure. Um, um, so sorry, just to set the stage a little bit, because we've been referencing the simplified regimens, but of course it's come a long way in the last 25 years. Interferon was around for a long time, which of course has a load of side effects and not nearly the success rate of the current direct acting um, antivirals. Then ribavirin came along and then Harboni was approved, which was revolutionary, you know, over a decade ago. And then some other ones have kind of spittled, spittled through being effective for different genotypes and everything until we got to the, the pan genotype um, options that we'll, we'll kind of harp on today. Yeah. Um, have you gone through like the eligibility for the simplified treatment already? No, not yet. Okay, so when we're working a patient up, um, if they are eligible for the simplified treatment, we're going to require less, you know, work up and all that. So you always want to assess and make sure a patient is is eligible for that to see. Uh, hopefully that makes things easier for you. Um, so patients who are eligible for the simplified algorithm, um, patients obviously who have chronic hep C, um, including patients now, this is a new update with the guideline, including patients who are living with HIV, so co-infection. Um, infected with any genotype, they have not previously received hep C treatment and patients um, either do not have cirrhosis or they have compensated cirrhosis, which they define as a child pew score of A. Um, it could be, if you're doing a fiber scan, it could be a liver stiffness of 12.5 kilopascals. Uh, if you're doing a FIB4, be basically greater than 3.25 when you calculate it. Um, liver biopsy, if you want to get real fancy, um, you can also count a low platelet count. So a platelet's less than 150, um, is being uh, a sign of that as well. So if the patient, as long as it's compensated cirrhosis, the patient actually still can qualify for the simplified treatment. Um, so HIV and compensated cirrhosis are probably the two newest things added now excluded from the simplified algorithm. Uh, would be patients that have a hep B surface antigen that's positive. That's huge. Um, if they have compensated cirrhosis and they also have end-stage renal disease where their EGFR is less than 30, um, they, would, they would be excluded. And then if the patient uh, is currently pregnant um, or if there is any type of suspected hepatocellular carcinoma um, or prior liver transplant, those would also be contraindications. 
And um, the, like, again, I mentioned those because if we can get away with easier or less testing, then we just, that much quicker we can get patients on uh, treatment and and uh, get them cured. But it is something that if the, the insurance may require additional information. So don't go by this as gospel, but um, you know, it's, it's a, it makes things a lot easier. And then, right. Cole, you already kind of went through the treat the pre treatment stuff for the simplified algorithm, right? Um, Most with of it, yeah. The test, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so there is some on treatment monitoring once they start taking it. Um, if they have diabetes, you want to monitor them for risk for hypoglycemia. If they're on warfarin, you want to monitor them for the INR for subtherapeutic um, uh, levels. Um, in general, there's not really other monitoring for patients. Um, and for the simplified algorithm, there really isn't um, lab work for the specific drugs that you need to do during the course for other ones. Sometimes there is in certain cases. Um, but uh, you will probably want to schedule some sort of follow-up if you need to, to uh, assess adherence and support, whether it's telehealth or phone call to make sure things are going like they should, they're taking it. It's an expensive medication. You don't want them to have to retreat if they can avoid it. And so that's some things that they'll do while you're on treatment. Now, as far as like verifying a cure um, on the simplified treatment, even if you didn't get any monitoring done during the the course, the eight week course or 12 week course, depending on the the meds you're using, um, at, after you finish treatment, then you wait 12 weeks. So, um, you're looking for a post-viral response and uh, seeing if there's any active virus at that point. So if as long as you're finding an undetectable vir- hep C virus at the 12-week mark after you've completed therapy, that's considered like a virologic cure. Right. And hopefully if the if your LFTs were elevated chronically, then they start to normalize and improve, hopefully. Right. If not, then we need to assess for other <laughs> issues. Have we told them what the... Um simplified algorithm is um it's i think you were starting to tell them um, as far as the the labs and stuff but basically instead of having to do like the fiber shore or anything you can you can calculate a fib4 and go off of that um in most cases for the simplified algorithm um, so it's i meant for like the medications but yeah oh, oh sorry did you, okay because let's say you did go through that right the pre-treatment yeah. stuff with them I mean, okay yeah sorry yeah I thought so. This is why we can't be virtual, dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you want to um, give the medications? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any place you want to start in particular? Well, so I guess pretty much for anyone, um, th- this is why it makes it easy. Uh, as far as the, you don't have to worry so much about the genotype because they're pangenotypic. So it's either going to be Mavret for eight weeks or Clusa for 12 weeks in many cases, right? Yeah. Yeah, those those are pretty much the gold standard nowadays for for treatment, and and realistically, they're both extremely effective medications. Um, it, really, the the big differences between them would be the the length of treatment. So, um, Maverit or uh, Glucapavir Prevenazivir has an eight week duration. Um, and it's like, like Cole said, it's pangenotypic. So whether you have, um, and, and we may not have even verify the, or explain the genotypes, but hep C has various genotypes. Um, and then some of those genotypes have subtypes and that's how they kind of like put it into specific categories, but, uh, genotypes one through six are all covered under both the, the treatments. And so it's eight weeks with Maverick, um, taking three pills a day, you know, all at once. And then the 
Savasbavir, Velpetisvir, or Clusa is typically, uh, you know, for a typical patient is going to be a 12 week course, but it's only one tablet a day. And, um, I, I have had some patients that even though the three tablets is only eight weeks for whatever reason, the, the, uh, the look of three tablets versus just the one, like, I'll just do the 12 weeks. Um, and I've had other people that are like, as you know, I want the shortest duration possible. You know, what are we going to do? So it, there's really not like a, uh, for, for your, you know, especially your patients who, you know, have a very low fibrosis score, you know, if they're an F0 or F1, you know, either gluc- um, Maverick or Epclusa is going to work just fine. One thing to keep in mind with Epclusa is if you have a patient who is genotype three um, and they have compensated cirrhosis as well, um, you probably want to do NS5A um, resistance testing. Uh, at least that's recommended because you're looking for this mutation that they call Y93H. Um, and if it's present, then you basically would have to, uh, to overcome that mutation and that potential resistance to the medication. They oftentimes will add weight-based ribavirin, um, or they can just change, um, you know, to a different regimen. So in that case, instead of adding ribavirin, I would probably want to add Maverick if I could get away with it. Right. So, right. yeah, th- those are our two go-tos for most patients, you know, when they're compensated cirrhosis or cirrhosis for any genotype right. that have never, they're treatment naive. Treatment naive, is, yep. Exactly. Yep. That's the, the key. Yep. Because there's resistance that can develop, and we'll talk about retreatment in a minute. But um, one thing that is very notable and kind of a change with this guideline um, is regarding adherence and the importance of adherence. Adherence is still very important historically similar to like when you're treating HIV, um, when you're talking about how important adherence is with those antivirals, that was kind of seen the same way with the hep C medications in terms of achieving a cure. You had to take like all the medication or be very, very adherent. They've kind of found that um, there are a lot of people who aren't necessarily fully adherent, but they still, it still results in a cure. And so that's a good thing that we still want to do all we can to promote adherence, but especially considering some of the patient population, a lot of, um, they're not a lot, but there are a fair amount of individuals who are incarcerated who are being treated for hepatitis C or they're active, you know, drug users. It can be difficult with adherence and getting them medications and getting good follow-up and that sort of thing. So um, the guideline actually set up a uh, kind of a, an algorithm for if, patients are non-adherent and at what stage that you catch their non-adherence, what should you do? So um, they have it split up into if you're catching it before they've done 28 days of therapy or after they've done 28 days of therapy. So if it's before they've done 28 days of therapy and they've missed less than seven doses, then you would want to, or less than seven days, I should say, um, then you want to restart the antiviral immediately and then just complete as planned. So if they've missed less than seven doses in the first 28 days, they're good to go. If they've missed eight or more doses in that time period, you want to restart it and restarting takes precedence over whatever you do next, but have them restart it um, and then obtain an a hep C RNA test as soon as you can, preferably the same day that you're restarting it. And if the RNA test is negative or undetectable, then you can just complete the um, the regimen as planned, either eight to 12 weeks or, or whatever it was. Um, if they have genotype three, Mike was kind of mentioning that um, you might extend the treatment for an additional four weeks just to be safe. Um, uh, if um, the hep C RNA was positive or you couldn't get it, 
then you'd want to go ahead and extend the treatment an additional four weeks. So that's if they've missed eight doses or more in the 28 days. Yeah. If and that, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I feel like kind of like you were alluding to earlier is that that was a huge reason why a lot of like primary care clinics and FQHCs and whatnot were like trying to avoid treating for hep C because there was this thought that like if, you know, if you're not perfect adherence to your 12 week regimen or something that it's not going to work. And I, I think that there's been so much data that's come out that's shown that that's not true, that I'm very glad they've had a similar version of this in the past, but I, I like this layout of uh, how to handle these interruptions. Cause this is definitely something that you will run into at some point if you're treating FC patients. Yes, absolutely. Um, so if they've made it to 28 days and they've missed less than seven days, you can restart therapy and just complete like you were, you were intending. Um, if they've missed eight to 20 days, so greater than eight, but up to 20, um, and they've made it past the 28 day mark restart. Um, but then go ahead and get a, an RNA level as soon as you can. Um, and similarly, if it's negative or undetectable, you can just complete the regular course unless they, um, have genotype three, um, then you may want to uh, expand, extend an additional four weeks. Um, if you can't get an RNA test or it's not obtained, stop treatment and retreat according to the recommendations that we'll talk about in the retreatment section. So that's uh, an interesting change there. Um, if they missed 21 or more doses um, and they've made it more than 28 days, you want to stop the medication, um, assess if they have um, sustained viral response at 12 weeks. So basically if they're cured and if not, then you would retreat them. Yeah. You know, and, and Cole kind of you know, brought this up earlier too, but about the, you know, the concern with patients who are IV drug users and the adherence rates. One thing the guideline also did mention is that they, they do recommend treating patients um, who are using IV drugs, even if they're not currently, you know, staying away from the drug, even if they're actively using, right. they still want you to treat. And I think that that's... Um, something that I feel like some people are uncomfortable with, but the reason why that's kind of, you know, moved to that, you know, that treat, even if they're not, you know, taking care of their, their uh, drug, you know, substance abuse problem. Um, they've seen that, uh, if one person who is infected with hep C within the first three years of their initial infection, if they're an IV drug user is, um, on average will infect 20 other people within that first three years. My and so it's so many people that can get infected by one patient that if we can, even if we can get them through most of their, their treatment, you know, and they adhere to most of it, it's probably still going to work. And, you know, we can prevent a lot of other people from getting it. So it really is like a public health issue as well. It's not just, you know, the, like, Hey, we're trying to treat everybody with hep C. We do want that as well. We, we could probably eradicate hep C if we really worked hard at it, but, um, it, you know, apart from a public health standpoint, it's a lot cheaper to treat the hep C than it is the complications of hep C in the long term. Right. Right. And Cole, you were kind of talking about that earlier with insurance companies. You know, liver right. transplants a lot more expensive than a hep C med. Exactly. Or, uh, you know, cancer treatment or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're not going to get into a lot of depth unless you wanted to, Mike, about the other medications. Um, but just know that there are other ones out there with varying regimens. Um, and if they have decompensated cirrhosis, of course, that kind of changes your thought process a bit. Mike kind of touched on it before. Um, but an option there that's pangenotypic would be a Clusa. 
And if you wanted to stick with the 12 week um, time frame, then you could add on ribavirin. Um, if you did not want to add on ribavirin and just wanted to do Epclusa, you could extend it to a 24 week regimen. Or if they couldn't take ribavirin, it could be a 24 week regimen with Epclusa for decompensated cirrhosis if they're treatment naive too. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the other thing to keep in mind with, um, Epclusa in particular, so, so Vospavir, is, um, some of the drug drug interactions. Um, so some to be aware of, it, it does have an interaction with amiodarone and can cause bradycardia if you take it at the same time. Um, and then we have to worry about ethanyl estradiol, um, containing oral contraceptives. There's an interaction with those as well. And, um, Another big one is carbamazepine, anox carbamazepine, um, also an interaction with Epclusa, and um, the the PPIs. That's the other big one because um, pe- you know t- people take them over the counter and all that. There, there's only a little bit of data that uses there shows PPI use in someone who's actively on Hep C treatment, and um, it was with omiprazole. I think it was omiprazole, twenty milligrams, I believe, but. Um, that's and it's ideally you don't have the money PPI at all, but um, in the situation where they you know literally can't come off of it, um, omiprazole at the lowest dose would probably be your safest, most evidence based bet. Yep. Um, I can't remember if we mentioned it with the acute infection, but um, the acute infection you you might find depending on if you're looking at some older recommendations you might find some watch and wait recommendations um if you identify somebody with an acute infection and they haven't reached the chronic phase yet mike mentioned that it can resolve spontaneously and so you might want to just say well maybe we should just see if it resolves and and monitor for that and not treat them this guideline uh, recommends against that they recommend treating patients with acute infections um and if you're wondering how, they recommend using the same um, uh, algorithm, the same guidance you would use for chronic infections, which kind of makes it easy. So um, they say, go ahead and treat same way you would as chronic, treat acute the same way. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the the two pangenotypic, you know, treatment options we have, I feel like are, you know, the go-tos at this point, because some of the other options, just to mention them, um, like Cole said, Harvoni uh, was one of the original um, medications that, you know, was one of the, after ribavirin, all those, those horrible ones, it's one of the first like really efficacious meds that we had. Um, technically though, it's, it's only indicated for genotypes one, four, five, and six, so not two and three. Um, and you have, do have to treat for 12 weeks for most patients. Um, if the patient um, does not have cirrhosis and, um, they're not, they do not have HIV and their, their RNA viral count for hep C is, is less than 6 million, then you can actually get away with uh, eight weeks if they are genotype one with um, Harvoni. But again, because it's not pan-genotypic, um, a lot of times the insurance companies will rather pay for something like Maverick or Epclusa anyway. So I, I haven't seen any Harvoni in a while. I'm, I'm sure it's still used for some patients, but I haven't personally seen it in a while. Yeah. And then we also have our um, Zepatir, which is the um, Elbatasvir, uh, Grazipavir. And this is one I don't think I've ever really seen actually out in practice. I mean, I know they use it sometimes, but it's really only indicated for um, genotype 1B and, and genotype 4. It, it can be an alternative for genotype 1A, uh, but they, they require resistance testing prior to actually 
starting it. So it's it's one that probably you won't run into too often, um, but it, it is out there. Yep. Um, as far as retreatment, so if a patient fails for whatever reason, maybe there was you know possibly resistance involved, maybe there was non-adherence involved, maybe just failed. Um, there's a host of scenarios, um, so it does get a bit complex. So I'll just touch on a couple of common scenarios that involve our um, kind of top two medications. So if they failed a regimen that contains Savospavir, um, then the recommendation would be to treat with 12 weeks of Vosevi, which is um, a three-drug medication, Savospavir, Vopatosvir, Voxilaprovir. Um, uh, the only exception would be individuals with genotype 3 infection um, and compensated cirrhosis. They would add on ribavirin to the Vosevi regimen. Um, so that's if they had a Savospavir-based regimen failure. If they failed Maverit, um, then uh, a recommended uh, retreatment option with Maverit plus ribavirin plus Savospavir would be recommended. Um, they reference a study called the Magellan 3 trial. Um, so basically retreatment with Maverick plus those additional couple of options could be, uh, could be something you can do, but there's a number of different scenarios. If there were multiple drugs involved or whatnot, and, and you kind of just have to go through it and see what fits your patient, if that's the case. Yeah. And, and I'll give you an example of this. We had one patient, um, who had maybe a year prior to coming to our clinic, um, had gotten started on Epclusa taking it for maybe a week or so, then just stopped taking it. And doctor called to check in on him, said, and this is from the patient who's telling me this, but um, since I got, you know, told me when, you know, got doctor got super mad because he'd gotten the, the medication and all that. And so uh, the guy started again, took it for like three more days and then just quit and just never went back to the guy. So he's telling me this and I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, that was a clue. So we probably need to do some resistance testing and uh, I, you know, see what, I want to, I can't remember if he had genotype three or what the deal was, but, um, we did end up doing, um, resistance testing and he had resistance to Savaspavir and, uh, uh, basically we ended up having to do the Maverick for 16 weeks, which is, is in the recommendations as an alternative option, um, instead of the Vosevi for 12 weeks. But, uh, we, we did end up having to do that and it, and it did work. The guy's Epsi was cured, but we, I was fingers crossed on that one doing yeah. six, 16 weeks of a therapy. Right. Right. Um, the, the, the other thing to keep in mind too, as far as, um, you know, picking between those two agents, the Epclusa, um, and the Maverick, you know, the Maverick does contain a protease inhibitor. So you do have to be cautious if the patient, um, is at risk for, you know, having their cirrhosis kind of transition over to decompensated or if they're already considered decompensated cirrhotic, um, that the protease inhibitor would not be ideal in those patients. So in that case, Epclusa would probably be a better option. Um, and then again, depending on what the patient's taking their med regimen, you know, that drug drug interactions that can play a role as far as picking between the two as well. Right. There are some special populations to be considered. So if you're HIV, hep C co-infected, the guideline talks about lowering barriers to um, to treatment um, using the simplified regimen uh, because uh, individuals that with HIV are disproportionately affected by Hep C, so any reduction of barriers can can benefit them. Um, they mentioned pregnancy and that they um, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2021. 
um, put out a practice advisory recommending the screening of all pregnant um, uh, women with hep C or to screen them for hep C with each pregnancy. Um, so that's a, a interesting other situation where you would need to screen and then treatment would be uh, on a case by case basis, but um, also transplantation. So it's not uncommon for a liver that is going to be transplanted to be infected with hepatitis C, uh, but you can still transplant it because we have medications to treat. And then of course the recommendation would be to treat it um, after transplant it. Uh, if that was the case. Yeah. And, and then they, they included that section on um, treating patients who are in prison as well. Did, did we talk about that already? Um, uh, not in depth, no. But yeah, they didn't, they did add a section on there about patients who are incarcerated and, and basically giving them access to, to treatment. Um, they, they kind of showed uh, that the, the public health, you know, uh, consequences of not treating these patients, they, they pointed out that, you know, up to 90% of patients will eventually get released. And then, you know, they, they have a higher likelihood of getting involved with certain things like IV drug use and whatnot. And so we want to treat these patients as well, just because they're incarcerated doesn't mean we don't treat their hep C. And uh, by doing that, we're also keeping them from infecting anybody else, whether it be in prison or out. Um, so definitely uh, a good idea. And in fact, there's one of the lead infectious disease docs up at uh, Prisma um, that would lead the cache presentations for that I used to do. Um, it for uh, for Hep C. I'll explain what that is towards the end. But uh, he would go to the the prison, I think, like once a week and see patients for Hep C. Oh yeah, uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought there would be that many patients incarcerated with Hep C being treated for it, unless I had experienced it myself. But I had a coworker who worked closely with Hep C. You were incarcerated? Had, yeah, yeah she, she, she was in jail. Uh, she had so many patients. Um, who were who were in jail and it was it was always a challenge of course as you can imagine or people who are in and out of jail and you know it's a challenge because what happened to the medication did it get left at the you know prison or who knows what and there were all sorts of problems uh, but amazingly they were still able to achieve cures and that's that's one of those benefits of realizing that 100 percent adherence is not necessarily dire but uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I, I mean i've actually this is by no means me advertising to do this this is the, the guy got super lucky and i told him so but uh i've had a patient who took epclusa for four weeks and then stopped it and that was enough to cure his epsi so he got, i told him i said man you better go buy a lottery ticket i know because <laughs> i was about to get so mad because <laughs> he just he just disappeared for like four months and yeah. then he's like oh, i only took one bottle man i'm really sorry about that <laughs> dude i'm gonna fight you you're like you know what i had to go through to get this yeah for you exactly yeah. um and so speaking of that you know if you're working in a clinic or you know you're working with hep C medications and you're trying to get them approved through the insurance, most insurance companies are still going to require prior authorization, obviously. Um, and depending on the insurance company, they'll, they'll want various and, you know, different information. One thing that some of the insurance companies still require, like certain Medicaid plans, at least they did as of last year, I haven't done much of it this year. Um, but they would require an infectious disease consult. And, uh, you know, the FQHC I was working at did not have such a thing. Um, and so we kind of got stuck on several patients we ended up having to refer out. Uh, but then I've, I realized that there was a virtual case um, presentations that happened through Prisma and uh, in common or in coordination with MUSC and Vanderbilt and a couple of places. But um, it's called the Southeast Viral Hepatitis Interactive Case Conference. And it's free to like 
sign in and listen to it and you can hear people presenting cases to the infectious disease docs that are, you know, kind of leading the discussion. And then they'll get, you know, the thumbs up or thumbs down on their treatment plan, um, you know, or make any suggestions that they need to make. And then from there, um, the patient gets, you know, or the, the, whoever it is, the provider can use that interaction, that case presentation as their infectious disease consult. Um, so it's a really cool program. That's, we were able to get all of our patients that required that GI or ID consult approved by, with, with the help of that group. So nice. They, they are a very, very cool, cool group. In fact, uh, the guy that leads his name is Dave, uh, Dr. Davia, uh, um, Davia Hoosier. And he's, um, he, he even, I mean, he's a big deal at Prisma, I think. And he, he even uh, took the time one day because he knew it was a really simple case and he basically just needed to say, yes, I agree with the treatment. And it was like a person with zero fibrosis, their fibrosis score was like literally like 0 0.1 or 0 0.01, I mean. And, uh, and so he, he, he said, when you call back up there, tell the person at Medicaid that Divya Hoosier said that this is fine, blah, blah, blah. And I, I put that on there and said, I, you know, consulted with him and it got approved like 30 seconds later. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I wish I was cool like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, I mean, he just let me call him on his cell phone and I've never even met the man in person. He's super nice. I just, I was kind of blown away that he took the time to do that for me, but great thing about, give, him, give him a shout out. Great thing about hep C is it is one of those situations where, you know, it, it's kind of cut and dry what's going to happen based on the patient presentation. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, I mean, that's the thing. It's not that hard to kind of manage hep C. Right. Um, it, and, I mean, especially in the first treatment phase. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and the big thing is, you know, you get your patients who are the F0s, the F1s, the F2s. You know, they're fairly easy. And a lot of the younger patients are because they're newly you know, infected. It's right. the older patients that are the more fibrotic. They've had more, you know, that they, they drink alcohol for longer or whatever, but, um, it's really not that hard to treat in a primary care setting and the infectious disease docs and, and GI clinics and all that are so backed up. You know, it's one of those things that more and more primary care, you know, providers, I wish would jump on board with treating hep C because it's really not that hard. Right. And there's some, some housekeeping things to talk to patients about too. One, we want to recommend that they do, don't drink alcohol if they have hep C, uh, because of course it will ongoing will will um, continue to um, affect their liver. Though it's not a reason to not treat them because of the short treatment course and the safety profile of the antiviral. So you still want to treat them even if they have ongoing alcohol use. Um, some patients and and even clinicians get concerned about like taking Tylenol because you know Tylenol can uh, damage the liver in high doses and whatnot, but um, even with hep C, you can still take Tylenol. They would generally recommend limiting it to two grams a day, um, whereas you'll see other recommendations for the normal population of three grams a day and whatnot. Uh, but you can still take it. And then there's also concern about statins, and um, and you'll see varying recommendations out there. Um, they have looked. There's been some safety studies done, and it hasn't. They haven't really seen anything particularly negative. Um, but that's something you'll hear is, is, you know, people thinking they need to come off the statins uh, while they're being treated or, or whatnot. Yeah. So. And, and I actually have the list in front of me here with the ones that are like contraindicated. Um, yeah. it's so the, the, the big ones to, to be aware of, especially considering that, you know, the glucopavir, preventasvir, the Maverick is, is one of the most popular medications used. If the patient is on a torvastatin, lovastatin, or simvastatin, you're not supposed to use Maverick or you're supposed to switch their statin. 
Um, they can be switched to pravastatin, which um, does have a max dose of 20 milligrams, um, or resuvastatin, which has a max dose of 10 milligrams if it's being taken with Mavret. Um, and so if you have a patient who you know, was previously on a high intensity statin, you know, Resuva 20, Resuva 40, um, you probably would want to decrease the dose. And then if you need to slowly bring it up, you can, but um, that, that medication, the Maver is going to cause the, the statin to build up in the system pretty rapidly. Right. And then as far as um, the others to, to be aware of, um, it's really the, the um, Savasvivir, you know, Vilpatasvir um, don't have as many issues, you know, with interactions and whatnot. In fact, pravastatin is like one that doesn't have any interaction with vilpatasvir and uh, is typically considered a, a go-to statin if you're going to use um, Epclusa. And uh, the others are, not, there's no contraindications like there is with Maverick, but just be aware that you do have to, you know, watch out for it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a, that, that statin chart is actually um, part of that, the, the hep case conferences. They, they've, given that in the slide set several times that's very useful yeah very useful oh by the way it's almost the end of the episode and we have not given the password yet. oh yeah Good man point. and this, uh another time when we didn't talk about it beforehand yeah so the password will be and cool hit to help me remember this when they asked me um hcv23 we'll say nice. that. yeah just came up with it I'm improvised it like a professional i'm impressed thank you dude appreciate you but uh yeah. So when you finish listening to this, don't go now. Finish this list. We're almost done. Finish and then go to FreeCE's website. Use that password and um, you'll get uh, access to the 10 question multiple choice test. So you can get that credit. And when you go to put in the password, make sure that you've listened to the whole episode because I've been getting inundated with texts from people saying, oh, there's no password in this episode. And I'm like, there's 100% because I, set it directly at the 30 minute mark and you're like no we listened to it one person said i listened to the thing three times there's no password i said okay if i send you a copy of this password but i was like i'm not gonna argue here it is thanks for listening because <laughs> i'm nice like that but yes make sure that uh you you, you remember the password when you go because you will not be able to take the test without it yes great psa yes yes and thank you to our free ce friends as well i know i said that earlier but really appreciate them continuing to work with us yep yep um one thing i also want to mention before we go to that i, I meant to mention earlier and, and just forgot um when cole was talking about the working up and getting their fibrosis score whether that be you know through the fiber scan or fiber shore um or just doing a fib4 calculation the what you're really wanting to ensure is the patient does not have advanced fibrosis and especially not cirrhosis. And so if you get the, the patients, you know, their, their fibrosis square back, that's an NF zero or F one, you're, you're most likely good to go. The platelets aren't low. There's no other signs. There's no ascites. There's no other like physical signs of cirrhosis. You know, the odds of the patient having cirrhosis would be extremely low. Um, when you start getting up into like the F three range, um, and, that's when there can be some more murkiness as far as whether it's really an F3 or really an F4 that's more advanced fibrosis. Um, and ideally, once you hit an F3, you would probably want to do, if you have access to a fiber scan, to get a little bit more of a definitive answer. Um, and then if nothing else, have them get screened with an ultrasound, an upper abdominal ultrasound, just to make sure that they don't have any signs of um, 
hepatocellular carcinoma because that's right. obviously a big risk with um, with Hep C is it can increase the risk of HCC as well. And also, if the patient already has HCC and you start treating them for Hep C, the the uh, efficacy goes down to like. I mean, less than half, I think. Right. So it's something that uh, we do want to screen. If there's any question about it, then then do get the ultrasound first before you actually move forward with it. Uh, I, I've, I was so close to moving a patient forward one time on treatment because I was like, there's no way they're fibro. But I just had like a weird feeling. I, I pushed the physician I was working with to get it because he thought it was unnecessary too. And I kind of made a big deal. We, we finally pushed it and he came back and uh, uh, he's like, yep. That guy has HCC, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. He said he he patted me. He's a much older guy than I am, and one of my really good friends I miss working with. And uh, he patted me on the back. He said, "Man, you do a wonderful job." <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, "Thanks, Dad." Yeah, right. <laughs> but no, he, he's a uh, he's he's a longtime physician and um, respected. So it was pretty cool to get a compliment from. It was like the, one of my first ones. Nice. But, uh, but yeah, anyways, so. Um, Make sure that you're screening for HCC if the patient has any, if there's any signs of cirrhosis that you're worried about. And um, the other thing I do want to make sure I mentioned too, as I said I was going to, is getting access to these medications. So if you have a patient who is homeless, let's say, so I, I used to work at an FQHC, we had several patients that were homeless. Um, to, uh, they're there are two different patient assistance programs, both the both Maverick and Epclusa have one. Um, I personally used the Epclusa one more and not just because I was speaking for them. I, I started speaking them for them because I was using their platform so much, but they're, uh, they have this program called iAssist that if you get registered with, you can basically fill out the patient's information and apply for the, on the patient's behalf. They don't need to, rec they don't need to verify um, social security, anything like that. Cause we definitely had some patients that, um, were migrant workers and whatnot and, uh, we're not, you know, here legally. And so we, we didn't, you know, we still want to get them treated. And so they, they're like, no, we don't ask questions. And it's, it's the, you know, company Gilead that makes up clues is the one that's doing it. So they're just giving the medication away, but I, I probably applied on the behalf of 50 to 60 patients and I did not wow. get turned, turned down one time. Every single patient I put in got approved. Nice. Do they have um, income limitations that you're aware of? No, and no, and like the income verification, even I, I, I my homeless patients, I don't have their income verification. Sure. I literally would just put no, nothing, homeless or yeah. living in it, and they would say, "Cool, sounds yeah. good." Sounds they like wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't bother the patient. It was, it was like effortless. Um, and Mavericks is pretty simple as well. I didn't use that one as much, but um, I, when I did have to use it a few times, they uh, they were always super helpful as well, and. Um, I, I don't know what their system is, if they've updated their platform or not, but right. both programs um, have medication options for patients where they can get it completely for free. Right. That is to so. say, don't let it be, you know, a barrier. And I mean, it is some a few extra steps, but, um, yeah, but people can get access to it. They yeah, get access don't, to it. Don't think. Don't assume they can. It, it really is like that with many brand name medications. Um, yeah. I mean, there are there are definitely times when they they can't get it, but um, it's it's more likely than you think that there is an op there is an avenue that they can get it. And and if if you can't get it, then just tell Colt because Cole will owe you the money. Yeah, that he's promised you. So just just email. Yeah, sure. just just email him and he'll take care of that for you. Yeah, email um email Cole's special file folder at core. Console yeah, 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 yeah. It goes right to me. <laughs> <laughs> what is this bill? Yeah. <laughs> for $20,000. All right, man. We got anything else you want to cover with this stuff? 
all I got, man. Cool. I think, I mean, we could spend another, you know, hours and hours and hours talking about this, but, um, I feel like that's a, a decent overview. Um, one thing, if you're wanting more information, obviously the guidelines are a great resource. They just got updated this year and, um, that's, uh, they're, they're free to download. Um, and that's with the, uh, infectious disease society of America. And there's also the university of Washington has like a free CE program that you can sign up for. It's a little bit, uh, it probably is a little bit outdated at this point. I don't know if they've been updating it, but, um, it, it's a free program to kind of get your, your feet wet with all the, the background information with treating hep C and all that. So, um, I had done that whenever I was first thinking about trying to, to move forward with this program and it was definitely helpful, but it's free to, to access. You just have to like, you know, sign up with your email or whatever. Um, but yeah, so those are some resources if, if you want to check those out and I can put those, uh, I'll put links in the show notes just in case. Um, but, uh, I hope you guys check those out. I hope that was helpful um, to kind of go through and, uh, make sure you check out our sponsor pearls. Um, if you're needing a new drug info app, pearls has got all kinds of great new updates and, um, I mean, they're cranking out algorithms and, you know, um, charts for different disease states and whatnot, uh, pharmacotherapy charts. I mean, they're doing different things like every single day. Now I see them release things. So, um, if you want to check out their free app, go to pearls.com and that's P Y R L S.com slash core consult RX sign up with your email and you'll get some, uh, um, some PDFs you can download for, for pharmacotherapy uh, algorithms and whatnot. And you can keep those. And if you don't like the app, you don't have to continue. You can always delete your email or, um, you don't have to sign up for the pro, but, the pearls have been great um, sponsors us for for a while now, and, and uh, definitely want you to check them out. Um, and then also, if you want more of like the traditional lecture style, boring lectures, you know, stuff, then uh, check out our Patreon, uh, where I do a lot of the pharmacotherapy lectures that I have for my PA students. I have uh, I want to say it's probably over seventy to hundred lectures on there now, different disease states, and um, I try to break them into like bite size format. So it's like heart failures broken into probably like four different lectures, um, maybe more, but, uh, it, it's a pretty cheap way of, of reviewing, um, your pharmacotherapy and, and, uh, you know, I like to think it's a pretty decent use of your $3 a month. Um, and then also too, if any of you sign up for the Patreon and, and do a year's, um, membership. So you pay the whole annual fee at once. You save some money. I think it's like $30 for the year. And um, you also will get a free digital book, um, High Powered Medicine, the Landmark Clinical Trials Review Book um, is uh, written by Dr. Alex Poppin. It's got over 150 landmark studies and summaries of, of the, you know, what went into the studies and their outcomes and whatnot. Um, and then, uh, you'll get a digital copy if you sign up for Patreon on then And that's, you know, uh, thanks to them for sponsoring the podcast. That was very nice of him to give, uh, free digital copies of his book out. So, um, definitely take advantage of that if you, uh, have not already, but anyways, that's, that's all my announcements and my, um, selling stuff. So thanks you guys so much for listening to us. Thank you freeze to E for continuing to partner with us. Cole, take it easy in your new house, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate I'll see it. you. I'll see you virtually next time. Yep. Yep. All right. Bye, everybody.